I said last week that I was of a couple of minds about how much detail, how much detail or how much time we would spend going into uh, some of the scientific matters and, uh, and potential discrepancies that people would like to point out to us from Genesis chapter 1. I've decided to, uh, to touch on the issue um, today and then, uh, and then move on from it uh, as of next week. Um, obviously, uh, some discussion points might arise out of this, and, and I'd like to make myself available for that. But here's the issue, because for some of you this will be uh, a really sticky issue, a really important issue. For others, this will be your first ever introduction to it. Uh, but here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that God created the universe. And the most straightforward reading of the text of Genesis chapter 1 that we looked at last week uh, is that God did all of this over the span of just six days. Uh, what's more, uh, the most straightforward reading of the Bible indicates that this all happened only 6,000 years ago. Uh, you can do the maths from the detailed genealogies uh, that follow from Adam uh, all the way to Jesus, who we know who about from years ago. Uh, what's the problem? Well, we are told that the age of the universe is in the vicinity of billions of years. And it's not just schools and universities that uh, teach us and our children these things, it's, it's the media, uh, it's even pop culture. It is core Western doctrine that the Earth uh, is billions and billions of years old. So we have options. Uh, we can stick with scripture, or we can follow the science, or we can aim for some kind of compatibility between the two. And even in that third part, there's a couple of options. Uh, we can uh, aim for compatibility either by doing science in such a way that the science follows scripture, or by going the other way and interpreting scripture in such a way that it follows the science. Or you can um, somehow try to keep the two separate, uh, allowing each to speak for themselves in their own separate spheres, uh, which I think works uh, a lot of the time until the spheres begin to overlap. Uh, and then there's some thinking to So I just want to suggest there are benefits and problems with each of these options. Uh, and I want to survey uh, a little of those today. What are the benefits uh, and uh, and challenges with following scripture alone, uh, or science alone, or trying to prepare uh, There is another issue. And this is actually for me, uh, and I think for us, I think maybe for the church, the most important issue with this, uh, or at least pastorally, uh, and, and it is this question. We will find people within the church who land in different places on the six days of creation and in the age of the universe. So what do we do? What do we do then? Do we stop at the ones who stick with scripture in the face of science because they're anti-intellectual and naive? Do we rebuke those who follow science in the face of scripture because they're spiritual compromise or a slippery slope or heresy? How do we decide in more general terms, not just thinking about creation, but about other things too, how do we decide what it is okay to disagree on and what things are non-negotiable? And how much energy do we spend trying to convince one another of our own point of view? 
Uh, so I am today going to tell you my own uh, personal views regarding creation. Uh, I want to try to explain to you briefly how I arrived there. Uh, but the most important thing I'm going to do after that is discuss uh, what I think is the key thing, is the importance of submitting to Scripture and how we do that. Uh, what it's going to look like under different circumstances. Because uh, what you think about six days and 6,000 years comes secondary to the principles that you apply to Scripture. And those principles have much larger snowballing effects than just whether you hang a hat on the on the peg that says six days or not. So here's my story. This is um, cheaply titled Rod's Evolution. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, going to church from uh, day one. I was taught from scripture uh, that God created the world in six days, and I accepted that without question. Uh, as a child, I also learned about dinosaurs. Uh, and a fossil record that supposedly dated back millions of years. Uh, it was probably only towards the end of primary school, I'm going to say about age 10, uh, that I began to recognise a conflict between millions and billions of years on one hand uh, and an earth created by God uh, 6,000 years ago on the other hand. 6,000, by the way, was a number I only learned when I was about uh, 10 or 11, as being uh, what Christians believed. I was a Christian, I didn't know I believed that. Uh, two things I seem to remember that particularly uh, grated against what I was taught from the Bible were principles uh, of a long, slow burn of evolution. Uh, and also talk of a big bang, uh, because that seemed to just not appear in the Bible as far as I could make out that thing. Uh, so there's conflict in the classroom also, uh, as, I, as I began to become aware of attention. Uh, throughout high school, I started reading up on uh, what I would call creation science. Uh, and some of you will have come across uh, some of this literature and resources. Uh, different interpretations on the scientific data that will differ from what you'll hear in the classroom, uh, which allow a gel between uh, fossil discovery and land formation that is actually compatible with a much younger view of the Earth. Uh, in fact, it's interesting when you think about uh, how the two camps are sometimes called older versus younger. 6,000 years is the young man. 6,000 years wouldn't seem so young if it wasn't put aside 14 billion. Uh, 6,000 is actually a long time and a lot can be accomplished very slowly over that time. Uh, I learned though, uh, through uh, some of my reading at this time, this period of consolidation, uh, that if you begin with the assumption that God didn't create the and that the Bible is wrong because supernatural stuff is fancy and false, uh, then you're almost bound to accept the theory of evolution that requires millions and billions of years. Uh, and that this first order assumption that God didn't create the world and that the Bible is wrong, that first order assumption then dictates how you understand scientific discoveries uh, in light of it. And I want to suggest that is bad science. This is science. But that's bad science. Beginning with a locked-in assumption that cannot be questioned is bad science. But I also learned through this period of consolidation and reading up on articles and some scholarly stuff and, uh, and things like that, uh, that, uh, that if you begin with the assumption that the Bible is right, then the scientific data can also be understood to fit into that narrative. And that is the main work of uh, ministries you may have heard of, like the answers in Genesis or creation history. 
uh, and they make some compelling points. However, I'm not convinced that this is necessarily the best approach to science either. It's the same trap. Can you see? Because both involve, to one extent or another, cooking the books, or they can be, making data fit a narrative that you've already decided must be the right one, instead of letting the data speak for itself. And so I'll say this when it comes to science. We shouldn't be afraid of science. Science ought to challenge our faith. Science done right in the world that God created will lead us to the truth. We don't need to fill to make it fit our storyline. If we're right about God, then in time, and as knowledge grows, science simply will fit the storyline. So that journey of learning about creation science for me, it greatly fed my faith. You, I'm not going to hang on about it. You can find the resources yourself. I learned that the Bible stood up to the rigors of historical and scientific study. And so the Bible uh, must be true. You know, remember, this is ages 13 to 16. These are important years uh, for a child or young man. Uh, it it became, began to dawn on me that, it, um, that the Bible was true and real in a sense that I hadn't fully appreciated until then, uh, which then led to give me greater confidence in Christ, give me greater strength to follow the Christian life in a time of my life when other distractions and so I've got a lot of respect and a lot of time after the work of these ministries. Uh, around the time I finished high school, high school, I learned for the first time that there are Christians who don't believe in six days of creation or six thousand year old birth. This is what I call conflict in the church that I hadn't realised until about this time. In particular, I learned that my own older brothers were in the camp of people beginning to question the narrative that I had come to accept and feel a lot of hopes on. And so uh, now it's personal. It wasn't just authority figures telling me I was wrong. I could live with that. We all kind of liked that a little bit. Uh, it was spiritual role models. It was loved ones who to me seemed to be veering on course. And so that question of, well, how much energy do I give to convincing these loved people that they're wrong, and what do I do? How do I tackle this, this conflict? Because a six-day creation had become for me so fundamental to my own faith, I was struck with fear for my own family uh, and other people I love. Were they abandoning scripture? Might they go to hell if they were wrong? Were they honestly persuaded? And yet Jesus says, by their fruit you will recognise my By their fruit. And I continued to observe people through this time who had different views about creation, who nevertheless held fast to a vital faith in Jesus Christ, and whose life bore good fruit. And then uh, through this period of time and, and continuing on through my life, the list of views that Christian people differ on has grown much longer. Uh, and so uh, Christians hold different views about baptism or women preaching in church, or the end times of prophecy, etc., etc. And so then the question becomes more broadly, which is our broad, important question today, uh, does creation fit into the category of views that it is okay for Christians to disagree on? I mean, it would be nicer if we agreed on absolutely everything, but since we don't, where do those lines get drawn? 
I'm going to suggest that uh, probably what you will gather from what I say today is it's less about drawing very hard lines, more about applying principles to scripture. How do we understand what the Bible is saying? How do we uh, how do we go existentially about following scripture where it leads? So to cut just to the end for a moment, does creation fit into the category of views that it is okay for Christians to hold different things as ours? I think yes, but it depends. I think yes, but it depends. So I'll continue my story just for a moment. 2009, I was about 22. I moved to Emerald for the first time to practice off country. I finished reading my whole Bible for the first time. It was a Bible in a year plan, it only took me three and a half to do. Um, and I don't know how many false starts before that. Uh, but I finished reading the Bible and I started again. And I started naturally with Genesis 1 and 2. And, and I, I remember the night. I remember reading it. And I remember noticing things that I had never noticed before. I read Genesis 1, just like we read in study last week. And then I read Genesis 2. And I noticed some things, like I say, that I never noticed before. And I'll point them out, but I'll, I'll give you the short version or the summary. I'm nervous about talking about this. Uh, because I know, uh, like my suspicion is that I'm uh, in a bit of a minority within this church. Uh, I am no longer convinced that a six-day creationism 6,000 years ago is the only valid interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 when read in light of Genesis chapter 2 uh, and when read in light of the rest of Scripture. Notice I'm not talking about comparing science or my friends or the people I want to love me. I'm talking about reading them in Scripture. Uh, so it's not science that's steering my opinions, it is actually scripture myself, and I will explain it. However, undoubtedly, six days, six thousand years ago, is obviously the most straightforward interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. And I love the straightforward interpretation. Traditionally, they're my favourite ones, the obvious ones. They will steer you safe nearly every time. If you are six days, six thousand years, if you are in good company, my friend, and I'll support you. I will not spend a single breath trying to convince you otherwise. I will use some words to try and open your mind just a crack. Just enough to allow for some difference of opinion. But no more. Because I think your interpretation is valid. I think it's even a good interpretation. It's certainly a safe one. Uh, it's not necessarily safe or popular in a classroom or among non-Christian peers, but there is always safety in the fundamental truth of God's word. Well, let me take you back to when I read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in 2009, and I'll show you what caused my mind to open a crack back then to accept that there may be, may be some compatibility between Scripture and a whole different 6,000 years old earth. And I'll say there may be. Not, not that I necessarily think you know, very well. So it's essentially these three questions. When did the How long was that six? And what is the context? Questions one and two are questions I never thought to ask before 2009. And so, uh, and they might seem very silly, but that's all. Remember this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its time and the And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, 
plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening in the third month. At the end of the day, push. There's land is and the land is covered with good plants. Genesis 1 goes through the six days, bam, bam, bam. Then Genesis 2 seems to backtrack, so it's to zeroing on day six. The plants are day three. Genesis 2, conventional reading of it is that this is now a, uh, a microscope on day six. And this is what we read earlier today. When God created man and woman. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the morning, and no small plant of the field was yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the man, and there was no man to work the ground, and this was coming up from the man, who was watering the whole south face of the then the Lord God comes to So if we map this from chapter 2 onto verse 11 from chapter 9, we learn that we must be somewhere before the end of day 3 at this point. Because there's no plants here and there were plants. Yeah, there's something a bit funny here because in Genesis 1, God simply speaks and the ground yields vegetation. In chapter 2, it says the reason there's no vegetation isn't because God hasn't spoken there, but uh, because there's not yet been rain to know the plant from the end of anything. Now that doesn't break anything, by the way. I'm, you know, let's not make that to be a bigger deal uh, than what it is. It doesn't break anything, but it's interesting, right? And then remember from chapter 1 that it's on day 6, three days after the plant has appeared, that God said that it's not the end. And yet in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it seems to be in the time still before plants. So God takes a dust, shapes it, breathes life into it to make it new. From verse 5, when no bush of the field, then in verse 7, the Lord God came to me. Now again, it doesn't break anything. The then of verse 7 could mean at a later time. Okay? Um, we could still you know, match these together. But in all my tendencies to prefer a straightforward interpretation, it does first blush appear that the most straightforward interpretation of Genesis chapter 2, that the Bible is saying that man was created at a time of no plants. So this is my first observation reading my Bible in my room back in 2009. The next question that occurred to me as I read on was how long was day 6 anyway? Uh, according to chapter 1, it's hard to think uh, that day 6 is anything other than 24 hours. Uh, there was evening and morning, it's a single day. That's the obvious straightforward way to read the text. Yet as Genesis chapter 2 zeroes in on the events of day 6, I would say that read on its own ignorance, it feels like it was taken longer. Or at least it's a single very old day. So chapter 1 says God made animals and man and woman all in one day. He spoke of the was. We read the important part of chapter 2 earlier, which uh, which essentially says this, that for, gen- for chapter 1 to gel perfectly with chapter 2, here's what must have happened. In a single day, God creates all animals with the word. God carefully creates a man out of God. He observes that the man is alone and that this is included. But he marches before the man every living thing that he has made. Adam examines and names each one. Together they decide that none are suitable for that. God sends Adam into a deep sleep, he removes a rib, forms a woman, wakes a man, introduces him to each other, and Adam concludes his small speech. Now, I would suggest that the most straightforward and literal reading of these events in Genesis chapter 2 is this probably would have taken several days at least. The naming of the animals alone. 
Now, that's not necessary. Um, I'm not convinced. But it's not totally bizarre or intellectually dishonest or utterly faithless to make that observation. It feels like more than that. Here's the thing. You can take chapter 1 and chapter 2 and squish them together and it's a unit. But you have to work for them. That's okay. Uh, but it feels like an awkward thing. It doesn't feel like it's the only way to do either chapter 1 or chapter 2 justice on their own minutes uh, to force them into each other. But we do have a duty, and this is the fundamental thing. We have a duty to take God at his word, to follow where it leads. And so I ask the final question of this passage, what is the context? And so two observations, and again, this is just from the page. This is from science. First, uh, last week I made a pretty uncontroversial observation that Genesis chapter 1 has poetic elements in it. Uh, the structure of the creation events feels more thematic than systematic. Uh, it feels more poetic than logical. Three days in which the spaces are separated, light from dark, sky from sea, land from ocean, followed by three days in which the expanses are internal field. Night and day filled with stars and stars, uh, sun, uh, sky and sea filled with birds and fish, land filled with animals and men. It's beautiful. I'll hint to you that the God who can speak stuff into existence can make light without the sun. But it's not being irresponsible with the text to ask whether God is teaching us something more about himself than about science. Second, what's the context? There's this important question. If we allow uh, that Genesis 1 might be written more figuratively than literally, how do we know when to stop? Really important question. How do we know when to stop? If we open the door, this door on Genesis chapter 1, then is everything that follows just, you know, take it or leave it, do what you want. Uh, even Jesus, you know, maybe he was just a great guy. Maybe they're just uh, cool stories that capture our imagination, but uh, there's nothing actually real. We, we can do what we want. That's not where I'm going to follow up. <laughs> if we allow that Genesis 1 might be written more figuratively than literally, how do we know when to stop? Why wouldn't we just lump everything in the whole world from that point on into a, a jelly lump of paper leaveness? The truth is uh, that all responsible reading of the Bible allows to be using figurative language in its place and literal narrative storytelling in its place. And I think on the page there is a place. I think there is a clear line drawn between the two. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice that for 34 verses leading up to this point, the creation of the heavens and the earth has been framed as a six to seven day event, but suddenly it's referred to as a single day event. Using the same word, even today, a day in which it was all created. Turns out the Hebrew word today works the same way as the English word. Day. It can mean 24 hours, very literally. Uh, it can mean day as opposed to night. Uh, it can mean a time period, as in back in my day, right? We use the word day in the same way that the Hebrews used it. Now, that's not to say, like, honestly, if you read Genesis chapter 1, it calls each one as day, as frames of the evening and morning. I think it's painting the picture of 24 hours. But I think it might be a picture. 
Uh, the fact that Adam and Eve are named after this point, and their ages are stated, and that they have children whose line you can follow all the way through scripture and history to Jesus, gives me no other option under God but to accept and believe that Adam and Eve were real people, and that Adam was probably literally made from dust, and Eve literally made from his rib. I find no grey areas in that. Uh, in, in the historicity or the reality of the individual spoken of in the Bible. But poetic literature should be read theoretically. And its truth should be discerned responsibly on its own terms. And I think the question of the extent to which Genesis 1 is both true, teaching true things about God and his work, but also figurative, because poetry can do things truly, just in a different form. I think that is a very wide and interesting question that might be now there's more, there's so much more to be said. Like I said, I say none of this to convince you of anything, only to have our minds open wide enough to see space for honest alternatives. That's all. So let me wrap up uh, with a few random comments to try and apply uh, and, uh, and sort of just discern what we do with all of this. I'm sure this has got more like a lecture. I hope it's been interesting. Uh, let me wrap up a few random comments. The usefulness of the document. Has my life been made any better or easier since becoming open to the possibility of an older age? Now, that's not a trivial question. That's not how we should uh, decide what is true, by the way. Uh, but it's not a trivial question when asking the importance and centrality of the doctrine of God. If it has little real world impact, then it's rarely worth spreading out. But I would say this I would say no. My life has not improved. I don't feel smarter now. I don't feel better. My life has not been made easy. It's been barely impacted. My faith has not been challenged. I'm less concerned about the salvation or integrity of Christians who hold to Christ for questions six thousand years. That's nice now. Though I do fear that those who question six days and six thousand years out of devotion to the world rather than out of devotion to the word. I, I fear for that. There's responsible and irresponsible ways of holding almost any even the true ones. You can be irresponsible with Christ. And you can responsibly do due diligence and make mistakes. The usefulness of a small target. I don't know if you know what I mean here. When it comes to evangelism and sharing your faith, Questions can often come back to Genesis chapter 1. I'll say this not as often as you might think, um, but they're out there. The questions will come up. You could use creationist science to build a case for Christ from Bible chapter 1, Genesis 1, and many do. Or on the other end, you could be drawn into thinking this. This is a trap. You could be drawn into this trap. If I can make the Bible more compatible and believable with a modern understanding of science, then maybe the rest of the message will be more palatable to skeptics. 
maybe I'll win friends, I'll influence people by you know bending to their beliefs and making myself and my belief system a small target. If we can make Christianity just a really low bar, then maybe people will just walk up, step over the bar, and we win. That has not been my experience. Making Christianity a smaller target to be struck by the world's attacks doesn't work. There is no pragmatic payoff in giving random signs for the sake of seeming cleverer or more believable uh, or winning people to cross. No. Now, that doesn't mean that we should make ourselves a big target by being obnoxious. In terms of living a quiet life, practicing good works, keeping from sin and depravity, that sort of small target mindset is good. But if you believe in the one who turned water into wine, and walked on the wine, and most importantly, rose from the dead, then you're already a big target for intellectual attack. And so, fiddling with Genesis 1 will not win you a single friend in any camp. And if your devotion is to the Lord Jesus, who died for you and rose from the dead, then you just need to accept you're already a big target. And the bar for faith is, is quite high. Jesus gives very little ground. He wants a whole person. Thorough repentance. If your motivation in following signs over scripture is driven in part by making yourself a small target for attack, then you really are on I give a comment to the integrity of creationist ministries. So there are uh, creationists six days, six thousand years ministries, like I mentioned, uh, Answers in Genesis, creation ministries, as it's called, that do push a scientific case for a young man. As I said, I've benefited a lot from the stuff that these guys put around. And I continue actually to turn to their resources, even though I'm no longer exactly in their field. Uh, they have a lot of value in the field, but as you can imagine, try and read their stuff now from my perspective. Simply for asking the questions that I have asked today, in their terms, I'm the beginning. I'm on the other. Now, I don't ask you to follow me in all of my beliefs and suspicions and idiosyncrasies. Follow Christ, not God. Keep the Bible open. Don't, you know, don't put it to one side to, to discover it. Follow Christ. But I do ask that if you and I are in the hands today, that you give me this little bit of prayer. Some of us have known each other for 16 more years. Um, I do not question six days in the spirit of compromise, or to be clever, or to be subtle, or because, you know, I'm educated now and in fact, I've stumbled in this direction before I was In the same way, uh, that I think hard evolutionists sometimes cook the books of science to fit their assumptions, I suspect that creationists can sometimes do the same. And I, and I do in their own book, I see bad science. Uh, a common criticism or concern of these ministries is that they talk too much science and too little Jesus. In their defence, I would say that's a really important measuring stick, but I've found them to be mostly pretty cool in that regard. 
they do seem to want to make a beeline for Jesus. In fact, they defend Genesis 1 out of the commitment to promote Jesus and salvation. I like that. I like that direction. And I think they proved useful in taking some things on that journey. But my preference is to move to Jesus quicker than that. And it's my perception that for most of our friends, Jesus will ask the most searching questions and provide the most satisfying answers than a scientific reading of Jesus. Very briefly, the dangers of following science. I don't know if you've noticed, in the years you've been alive, science changes. Uh, their decisions and conclusions uh, get adjusted all the time, except for that first order assumption, by the way. Uh, that seems pretty well obvious to the Bible. But, sorry, remember I'm quoting I'm quoting Peter Never know when you might that But but let me say this: following the winds of change of science or any other discipline, history, even in some cases uh, theological disciplines of doctrine and stuff like that, uh, following the winds of change will embarrass you more than not. The Bible makes audacious claims and has continued to stand up very well to Christians. Questions that are asked of the Bible now, things that seem to be common Western doctrine that fly in the face of Scripture, will be overturned in time. That has happened so many times in the disciplines of history and science. Don't fear that stuff. Stick to your guns and stick to the Word of God. It holds the words of the eternal, much more practical, functional uh, for living. At the end of the day, following science will not make you smarter or more believable or more intelligent or winning more points with people. Uh, in fact, very, uh, very dangerous. It is no problem. Then the dangers of following scripture. And I only put this here to come back to this fact that if you follow scripture and you follow the word of God, there is a danger. There is great safety. Because if you are wrong about believing God's word, then God will still love you, right? If you, if, you know, if you've inter- if, if it turns out that creation didn't happen in six days, that you stuck to it because God's word said so, God's not going to take you silly You had it wrong all the way. No way. Because you accepted him, right? If I'm wrong in my uncertainty. I, I think I'm safe, right? I don't choose that because I want to be safe. I can't unsee the things I've seen, right? And, and I try to follow the truth uh, with integrity. But uh, you are safe in God's hands if you take him at his word. And you read his word with integrity and an honest spirit and a humble heart. But you must not the cross. There is a danger in following the word of God. Jesus was persecuted, and we must expect the same. Uh, Jesus accepted shame, and we must accept as his disciples that the world will desire to heap shame on the There is a danger. You must count the Don't fear being deep It's by the Lord where you believe. Trust always in Jesus. And in that danger, uh, what does it say? Do not fear those who can hurt the body. 